I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. And just one one-thousandth of 10,000 years ago, 10 years ago, uh, we were working on a thing called the Rosetta Disk, which was going to collect all the languages in the world onto a micro-etched disk that could be read by anybody with a microscope any time in the future. Um, they didn't need to be digital. And just about that time, the European Space Agency was getting ready to launch a rocket toward a distant comet. Uh, that project was called Rosetta, so they said, could we have one of your Rosetta disks, please? And uh, on the Rosetta disk in microetch form, it was 1,500, sorry, 1,000 languages at that point. We're up to 1,500 now. And as of today, that disk and their rocket is now in orbit around the comet 76P. where it will remain for a very long time. <laughs> a very, very long time. And if in some uh, unimaginably distant future, some entity wants to know about the languages that were spoken on Earth that long ago, all they gotta do is go to 76P and take a microscope. <laughs> a similar period of time ago, um, I used to work with Global Business Network, and we did occasional work for uh, intelligence people in Washington. And one job we did for the Department of Defense um, was an interesting expansion of something we did 30 years ago, the first Hackers Conference. In fact, there's some people here from that, John Markoff, Kevin Kelly, Ryan Phelan, and others. We did it in 83, 84. We got together three generations of hackers that existed then. This was before NetHeads, which is software and hardware. And uh, part of the discussion then was, are hackers good guys or bad guys? And uh, we all agreed they're good guys, and, but you know, we should be aware of bad guys. But uh, democratizing technology was going to be a great thing. The 10 years ago event that we did uh, for Department of Defense was called the Cultures of Hacking. And it was a study we did over several months over what, is, what was the present state and the likely future of uh, malevolent hacking. And it was an education for those of us who'd been around back then because everything from the skip, script kiddies to the world-class mathematicians, there was a whole vast illicit ecology worldwide of crackers, of uh, relatively demonic hackers. Uh, who were organized and sometimes organized in relation to states in Eastern Europe and Russia and emerging then in China. And uh, the innocence of 30 years ago went away. Uh, to their credit, the people in the Defense Department we did that work for helped make that study semi-public. And uh, so people became more aware of the kind of threats that the Internet is bringing as well as all the manifest benefits. Somebody who's been living in the thick of that at the NSA for a while now is Ann Neuberger. Please welcome her. 
Good evening. My name is Anne Neuberger, and I'm the principal advisor to the director of NSA on NSA's work with the commercial sector. Essentially, I'm responsible for overseeing NSA's work with the technology sector. As you can imagine, it's been a rather challenging year, a rather... <laughs> yes, there's some humor in that. A rather long year. And I've often felt as if the national debate was playing itself out in my head every single day, for reasons I'll explain. Several months ago, earlier in the year, I met Stuart Brand at a small industry event. And we had a wonderful conversation about the ongoing debates between security and privacy. And I think we both realized that there's a fair amount of misconception and misunderstanding on each side of the, deba of the debate. And I realized that with more open, candid discussion, perhaps, we could speak about some of that misunderstanding and potentially get to a future where we have both security and privacy. So today's presentation is the starting point for that, and I truly hope you'll engage with me in that open conversation. I have to admit, the highlight for me of being here is actually the question and answer session, trying to hurry my way through my own remarks so I get the chance to hear your questions, engage with you, and really start that conversation. But before getting into the issues too much, I'd like to tell you a little bit about myself, my own background, and why these particular issues resonate with me in such a, such a personal way. I'm a first-generation American, and my family raised me with a deep sense of appreciation for the kindness and mercy that they felt had been extended to them, the, the tempest toss, the golden door, in Emma Lazarus's inimitable, beautiful words. My father and his parents came as refugees from communist Hungary after the Hungarian Revolution of 1956. And my grandparents are all Holocaust survivors, survivors of the deportation and concentration camps of Nazi Germany. Seven of my eight great-grandparents were killed in the largest Nazi concentration camp, Auschwitz, sometime in the spring of 1944. I'm named after a great-grandmother, who was just a bit older than I, than me, when she was killed. So my family's background instilled in me a deep fear of what can occur if a government's power is turned against its people. Its people or another people. Nazi Germany was, after all, a democratically elected government. And beyond that until today, I see the impact of having been raised in a communist system on my dad. He'll, he'll marvel when he reads a newspaper article that criticizes a government policy. And on a visit back to Budapest 20 years ago, he still wouldn't walk past a police station. So belief in those freedoms that are so exceptionally American is what brought me into government several years ago from the private sector. Belief in those freedoms and a deep sense of gratitude for the enduring welcome and the ability to breathe free that my family taught me to so value. So given that family background, why work in the intelligence community, you might ask? And it's a fair question. 
Just about 38 years ago, when I was a baby, my parents took their first international trip together. One that they'd planned for a while, they'd put the money together for a while, and they'd really looked forward to for a while. And on their return flight from Tel Aviv, Israel to Paris, an Air France flight by way of Athens, the plane was hijacked by terrorists and taken to Entebbe Airport in Uganda. The, Jewish pa the non-Jewish passengers were freed, and the Jewish passengers were held hostage for a week at gunpoint, subject to constant threats. The hijackers announced that on the following Sunday morning, they'd begin killing the passengers. And on Saturday evening, under cover of darkness, an Israeli Special Forces unit flew in and saved over 100 hostages, men, women, and children. A couple of the hostages were killed. The Israeli commander of the mission, Colonel Jonathan Netanyahu, also gave his life to bring home to save those hostages. This is a picture of my parents coming off the cargo plane in Israel with the other hostages on July 4th, 1976. My dad is the man in the middle in the back with black glasses, can't quite see my mom, and he tells me he was intent on being seen on TV, so his parents and my mom's parents back home in America would know they were safe. So he has his hand raised right there in the middle, eager to be caught. My life would have looked very different had that military operation not succeeded. So it gives me a perspective on the threats of organized terror and the role of intelligence and counterterrorism. There are threats to the society and freedoms that I love. And the intelligence community maintains insights into those threats. I've seen that community save lives, both here in the US and overseas, warning a foreign government, for example, of a planned attack. But my family background, most of all, instilled in me almost parallel belief systems. On the one hand, a tremendous fear of the power of government if turned against its people or if left unchecked. And on the other hand, a belief that sometimes only government, with its military and intelligence, can keep civilians safe. Those tensions in my heart and head shape the way I approach my work each day. And I know that they shape the way many of my colleagues at NSA approach their work as well. But I also believe that these seemingly contradictory factors can and can live in balance. And with your help, I think we can define a future where they do. The Long Now Foundation is famous for pushing the horizon of our thinking. So here's how I think about NSA's mission on the horizon of your famous clock. Information technology has almost unlimited promise and potential. But whereas centuries ago, it took a nation state or environmental disaster to broadly, negatively impact a country's citizen. Today, I think we're reaching the point where even individuals can use technology 
to cause catastrophic harm. We can't and should not limit the wonderful potential of technology because of the ability potentially for misuse. But as a society, we need the ability to detect, deter, and if necessary, potentially disable lethal threats. Sovereign governments may be in a unique position to do that. And I choose the word sovereign carefully because the traditional definition of sovereignty is of that social contract between a government and governed to protect a society from the Hobbes, short, dark, poor, nasty, brutish, and short, I never quite get that right, existence. And that's our current debate. How does a government live up to its side of that social contract and protect against new threats as technology evolves? And how does a government live up to that complete social contract, not violating any element of that social contract? That's the big picture. My role in the small picture is working at the edge of an organization that works to protect each day while fostering innovation and being a part and partnering, helping secure global cyber infrastructure that underpins so much of global advancement. So what I want to talk about today is the vision for where we're headed. Probably unsurprisingly, there's been a fair amount of soul-searching at the agency over the last number of months over where we are today and the kind of organization we want to be 20 to 30 years in the future. Of course, as this organization particularly knows, successfully anticipating the future is often problematic. Sometimes as human beings, we tend to assume things will continue along a, a current trajectory and don't quite think about the full range of possible scenarios. So rather than talk about where we'd like to be as an organization in 20 to 30 years, I thought perhaps we'd talk about the types of environments we may face and what that means for us, NSA, as an organization, and what that means for us as a country. So to do this, we'll, we'll do three things. We'll talk about five, from my perspective, future tensions we'll explore as current trends continue to develop. We'll examine a few future scenarios that could result from the interaction of these tensions. And we'll talk about three specific hard problems we'll need to resolve to navigate these particular challenges successfully. So tensions, future scenarios, challenges to resolve. So what are the current tensions? And I'm just going to kind of build that out. What are the current tensions that will shape issues of security and privacy that we face in 20 to 30 years? From my perspective, and I know there are many perspectives in the room, and we'll discuss and debate whether these are some of the key tensions you would all feel are the ones to think about. But from my perspective, there are five key ones. The potential and risks of interconnected cyber infrastructure, intelligence legitimacy, the need to retain technical talent, the need for personal data norms in an era of big data, and finally, evolving internet governance. So let's talk about that first one, 
cyber interdependencies. The US and global community are becoming ever more dependent on digital infrastructure, even as the number and sophistication of cyber threats or cyber attacks continue to grow. Whether it's a lone wolf with a grudge, countries intent on intelligence or economic advantage, or criminal elements intent on financial gain, as Target and hundreds of other online retailers have experienced recently. There are any number of, as we call them, bad actors in cyberspace. And this is coupled with the fact that the world's increasingly interconnected. As we saw, you know, tremendous, enormous amount of personal information was stolen from Target by its interconnected air conditioning networks. The US is a highly networked society, and the potential for negative impact to that society, to that open society, from malicious activity is significant. So the tension of cyber interdependencies involves how do we balance the tremendous promise and potential of the internet with, to a certain extent, the almost equally unlimited vulnerabilities in our cyber infrastructure. And there's a particularly interesting angle here, because US companies are global technology leaders. Governments, the US government, are all customers. At NSA, even our most sensitive networks run on commercial technology. So we actively, though quietly, work with companies to improve the security of products. And in some cases, we'll even bring together a group of companies if there's a set of vulnerabilities that cross the stack. I've participated and in some cases led those efforts. On the other hand, though, a loss of trust potentially I'm <clears throat> sorry, by global customers, because of a potential sense that there's too close a relationship between any commercial sector and any one government, be it the US government or any other government, has the potential to be ne very negative for our economy and the standing of our global tech community. So for NSA specifically, this first tension of cyber interdependencies is how we manage our mandate to secure the nation's most sensitive networks with the need to pursue bad actors in cyberspace. So that's that first tension. The second, the intelligence legitimacy paradox. This actually dovetails naturally into this second tension, one that Benjamin Wittes of the Brookings Institution very insightfully calls, and I'll read this, the intelligence legitimacy paradox. As he describes it, the threat environment America faces is growing ever more complicated and multifaceted and the ability to meet it is growing ever more deeply dependent on first-rate intelligence. Yet at precisely the same time, many in the public have grown deeply anxious about our intelligence authorities, and our intelligence community is facing a profound crisis of legitimacy over its very authorities to collect. Put another way, the debate about what powers the state needs to protect society and the appropriate checks on, that powers, on those powers is nothing new. I recall early in my tenure in NSA, the first time one of our attorneys walked me through the Fourth Amendment, or the freedom from unreasonable search and seizure of one's property, and the history of how that was applied over time to increasing technologies. So the telephone, for example, and how Congress and the courts determined whether the government had the authority to search wiretap a phone call, and whether that was property in this new era. So in many ways, the current debate over privacy and technology 
is simply our generation's continuum in this ongoing evolution. The government has had to adjust and adapt the relationship between technology, privacy, and security over the years. It didn't always get it right at the first time, but the key piece in our society was that ongoing evolution. So that's that second tension, the overall legitimacy of that intelligence. The third tension I anticipate facing in the future is one we like to talk about as talent leverage. And it revolves around America's edge as a leader in technology and innovation. As you can imagine, it's sometimes been a challenge competing with the private sector for technical talent, particularly when the economy is doing well. But NSA has always had a cool mission and the ability to attract some of the, best, some of the nation's best mathematicians and computer scientists. Over the past year, though, the surveillance debates have painted NSA in a rather, shall we say, unattractive light. And we anticipate that we'll see that in our ability to recruit some of the nation's best technologists. But this really goes beyond NSA. So the World Economic Forum recently ranked the US as the 49th in the world in the quality of math and science education after countries such as China and Iran. If well-educated foreign engineers and technologists build leading tech companies overseas, the US government and our tech sector will face difficult choices around how we navigate the future global economy. Skip one there. So the fourth tension I'm interested in the future evolves the evolving need for personal data norms for both private sector and government to harness the power of the Internet of Things while managing the very real risks to privacy. Think back to the case of Target, where internet-worked air conditioning systems introduced a security vulnerability. As the number and variety of devices online continues to proliferate, everyday technology will allow increasingly ubiquitous tracking of individual behavior by government, the private sector, and potentially communities of internet users. With the right applications, this explosion of information can bring tremendous value to society, consumers, and companies. But in the wrong hands, or without the right safeguards, there's a dark side to big data. I doubt consumers truly understand the breadth of data collected about them each day by the private sector each day and how easily that data is linked and mined to make traditional privacy protections, like anonymization or notice and consent, largely obsolete. And further, as technology continues to evolve, new frontiers may arise that we can only speculate about today. So think about merging together digital and genetic information. There's tremendous promise the ability to tailor drugs to individual-specific genetic mapping, making them potentially more effective and managing side effects better. But there's also, potentially, a world where foreign enemies can create viruses that target the specific genetic makeup of a nation's leaders. Or criminal elements can not only steal personal information, but also personal genetic information. Indeed, many major industries are missing from the security and privacy debate, including those in manufacturing, life sciences, and energy. So, for example, 
Think about the potential load signatures or the degree of power different devices use can truly help us conserve energy in very interesting and wise ways. But there's also an interesting privacy angle in that analyzing the load signature can give information about a household's behavior, health, the health of its inhabitants, and potentially illegal behavior. Although I believe growing medical marijuana in this state is legal. <laughs> so this tension involves how we harness the power of big data to advance technology, while also keeping an eye on the very real risks to privacy. And the last important tension has to do with evolving internet governance, whether today's largely free and unpoliticized system of governance may slip away, resulting in uncertainty around the global information environment. Continuing debates over intelligence surveillance has created friction with foreign governments and technology leaders, complicating efforts to collaborate around internet governance. The US government firmly believes in a free and open internet, and under US leadership, we've seen the development of a technically-oriented, open standards-based system. And the challenge is, how do we ensure that that continues? So these five tensions, the potential and risks of interconnected cyber infrastructure, intelligence legitimacy, retaining our technical talent, and the need for personal data norms in an era of big data, as well as evolving internet governance, I think integrate into a central question that all of us here want to work to resolve. How does a government maintain an intelligence system sophisticated enough to protect our society in a complex world? And how can this be achieved while also retaining public trust and being true to the values and freedoms that have drawn generations of immigrants like my family here yearning to breathe free. We can think of a range of plausible future scenarios 20 to 30 years down the road that could result from these tensions. Three stand out in my mind that I'd like to share with you. Unsurprisingly, the third is my preferred choice. So let's call our first scenario intelligence debilitated. In that scenario, we managed to hold our technological edge as a country, improving our STEM education and continuing to attract the best and brightest minds from overseas. But all is not perfect in that world. At NSA, we fail to develop a new social contract with the American public. And there's ongoing distrust between industry, NSA, the intelligence community, and the public. Our own workforce becomes demoralized, and we face increasing difficulty in attracting top talent. Our programs are curtailed and capabilities diminished. And some might say, that's a good thing. In this scenario, technologies continue to advance rapidly. Personal information proliferates as people communicate and interact in entirely new ways. New ways to aggregate, manipulate, mine, and track this information abound. Of course, this technology produces tremendous value for society. But technology has also outpaced the ability of the government to keep pace. With the workforce I just described, 
we probably don't even understand it. And again, you might say, that's a good thing. But when technology outpaces a society and the government in terms of that social contract, ability to understand and modulate the hazards, I think we're all at risk. And as we talked about in that example, meanwhile, terrorist groups and enemy nations find new ways to strike at us remotely. Potentially, international criminal groups come up with new and effective ways of exploiting new data sources to defraud or steal from consumers and companies. So the critical question in this scenario that we need to ask ourselves is, would we be comfortable in a world of runaway technology and weakened intelligence capabilities? Would we be safe as a nation? If the first scenario sees the US business sector ascendant while government struggles, this second scenario envisions a viable scenario of us in a slump as a nation. Let's call this withering nation. In this scenario, we see a backlash in the US against the unrestrained collection and use of personal data. Both the private sector and the US government face new regulations that curtail the ability to gather and use data. Concurrently, we could see a global backlash against American leadership in international communications and technology. The internet may become more nationalized, with nations or regions developing their own networks, rules, and technology standards. We've lost our technological edge as a country. Fortunately, I think we can also see a scenario where America retains its prominence in the global economy while being able to protect itself responsibly from evolving threats. And being somewhat hokey, we call this scenario intelligent America. In this America, we develop a new social contract between the American public, our companies, and our intelligence community, specifically NSA. With time and focus, the US government and the private sector rebuild trust between industry, government, and consumers. Common, transparent privacy norms are established, driven largely by rapid innovation and leadership from the private sector. So the critical question becomes, what steps do we need to take today to envision that last scenario? From my perspective, there are three hard problems we need to resolve in order to see that last scenario. We need to develop an effective social contract with executive branch support between NSA and the American public that will allow us to build and sustain the trust we need to face ongoing challenges. And I assure you that this problem, that this challenge, is as important to NSA and its employees as it is to our strongest detractors. On my first day at the agency, I was sworn in with an oath that over time I felt came to reflect the very values of, the, of NSA. And I'll read that oath to you. It's an abridged version. And this was it. I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, and that I will well and faithfully discharge 
the duties of the office, so help me God. NSA's employees truly are loyal, dedicated public servants who joined the, energy, who joined the agency out of a desire to serve. The sense over the last year that they, that we, have lost the trust of the public we served has been tremendously devastating. So here are some initial steps we've taken to focus and build on that social contract. First, the Director of National Intelligence and NSA are working to share, have shared more and declassified more information than ever in its history. And it hasn't just been random declassification. It's been intentional declassification of the key programs to allow folks to understand those programs, read about them in detail. We're looking at new methods to provide insight into our operations that still protect sensitive sources and methods. NSA folks always looked at themselves as the quiet professionals. And the sense of hawking or talking about successes is thoroughly countercultural. On the other hand, we do need to ask ourselves how the public we serve understands the risks and threats, particularly as the memory of 9-11 fades, and doesn't take the work done to protect and defend against those threats for granted. This would enable our overseers, and most importantly, the public itself, to make more informed decisions about whether programs are warranted or achieving their intent. As a third thing, as part of the, effective so as part of the work to develop a more effective social contract, NSA has been more actively engaging with the media. I don't think an NSA or a year ago would have come to talk here at Long Now. What a pleasure it is to be here. That's before the Q&A session. <laughs> Second, we've tried to address the negative impact U.S. businesses have said they face in foreign markets. To preserve U.S. trust abroad, the administration is extending new privacy protections to foreigners that were typically only available to U.S. citizens. We've begun to develop new safeguards to limit the duration and use of personal information. It's real. I've been in myriad meetings, the measure in the government, of whether something is being taken seriously. More undoubtedly remains to be done. U.S. companies are global technology leaders, and technology innovation has been the core driver of our knowledge economy. So we need to better consider the economic risk of future intelligence activities. Finally, we willingly embraced even more collection oversight. NSA hired its first ever civil liberties and privacy officer. She's terrific. And we're supporting reviews of most of our key programs by the President's civil liberties and oversight boards. We've begun new ways, of course, led by the administration, to implement the reforms to bulk collection programs that were really at the, bulk, at the bullseye of many of the public concerns. But this cannot be a one-way street. And we definitely need your help. We welcome your input, particularly this community's input, on each of these way ahead. And there are different ways that you can do that. First of all, get involved. Many of the organizations and oversight committees hold public hearings. I believe the President's Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board held its last public hearing July 23rd. Attend. Make your voice heard. Or, perish the thought, come work in the government for some period of time. 
least it gets a laugh, doesn't get snorts. <laughs> the Presidential Innovation Program, for example, brings in people to work closely with government folks on specific problems for a period of time. Candidly, when I joined government for one year as a White House Fellow in 2007, I didn't think I'd stay more than a year. And equally candidly, I've questioned that decision any number of times over the last year. But on the other hand, I found the work fulfilling, and the opportunity to contribute fulfilling, and I've stayed on. So consider that. There are so many ways to plug in, make your voice heard, and actually get involved in, in shaping government policy in these areas. Problem number two, we need new tools to unlock big data responsibly. We can fully predict the full range of amazing, or to a certain extent frightening, technologies that could emerge over the next several years. But it's to our collective advantage, private sector and government, to define transparent, responsible norms and ensure that over the long term, we are re retaining consumer and the public's trust. From the national security perspective, we have two problems. Surveillance of known threats to the US and discovery of new threats. We have tightly regimented rules for how to gather information on known threats, but the challenge is finding the unknown threats, those proverbial needles in the haystack. And the challenge for us is finding those needles without collecting and storing necessarily that entire haystack. We're proud that we've been longtime leaders in the area of big data, and we'd love to work with our industry big data colleagues on ways, to crack this, on ways really to crack the code on responsible data collection and analytics. The last one is one that we at NSA have the least ability to impact, and that's we as a country need to cultivate our technical and human capital. But there are certain things that we are doing at NSA. We fund lablets at over 300 universities to conduct basic foundational research on the science of security. We also offer a wide range of internship and scholarship programs at the high school, college, and graduate school levels. The Stoke Educational Scholarship Program, I actually just went to an event at that at the agency last week, offers, for example, minority high school students wishing to study computer science, scholarships in that area. But this is a problem that's far bigger than NSA. It's a national challenge. So in closing, we in this room need to have honest conversations and think big thoughts about the relationship between civil liberties and national security. I believe we can affect positive change. I think we can get to that intelligent America, where the interests of security, society, and business are not only balanced, but optimized. So my call to action for everyone here in this audience is to get our innovative minds focused on the challenges we talked about today. The solutions aren't obvious, but this is a group that thrives on that. Taking contrarian perspectives and discovering remarkable solutions to the most difficult problems. I truly believe we can do this. Or, as generations of immigrant families like mine always said, in America, anything is possible. Thank you. Thank you, Stuart. Thanks a lot. My pleasure. So we're bringing up me and Paul Saffo. He finds his way up here. And...
what I can say about Paul is uh, he has some familiarity with this domain, which you should describe because I lost that little card you gave me. Oh, uh, like so many of us in Silicon Valley that uh, we have contact from time to time with, with government agencies. Uh, I was involved with the National Intelligence Council uh, and the Atlantic Council, where I'm a non-resident senior fellow in producing Global Trends 2030, which in the spirit of what you were talking about is a publicly available document on the web and so public, in fact, that the Chinese CIA is translating it into Mandarin with the permission of the National Intelligence Council. <laughs> um, Kevin Kelly asked a question about this presentation. Um, how much is this personal views and how much it is uh, sort of deeply vetted NSA, you can say this now kind of stuff? <laughs> <laughs> So I think the broader perspective on um, some of the challenges we face are certainly held broadly across NSA, but a big part of those tensions and how they interconnect and those trends are my personal perspectives. I think what we were talking about here, as we said earlier, you know, within the agency, we've certainly done a fair amount of soul searching, thinking about where we want to be. And those three hard challenges at the end, the need to define a more effective social contract, that's certainly something felt across the agency. The need and the challenge of retaining technical talent is certainly something felt, and a concern of how we as an agency will be able to pursue our mandate of both securing the nation's most sensitive networks without that ability to attract the best and brightest of the country's minds. So I think it's probably a fair balance, mm -hmm. um, although I have to think about what that means to be fully vetted by the National Security Agency. Well, who else read your uh, talk before you came here? I did. Any number. You're yeah. correct. And You're I, correct. I said it was okay. So, <laughs> so you're kind of at the interface, I gather, from your job description between the public and private sector in this world. And are you sort of a window in both directions? Are you, as you're doing today, kind of explaining to the private sector, look, this is what the world mm -hmm. looks like from the NSA? Mm -hmm. Are you also explaining to the NSA what the world looks like from the private sector? Absolutely. That's actually, the, that's actually exactly my role. You know, I, I, I suspect any number of folks here have played that bridge role between two different cultures, uh, between two different societies, and I find that that translation role is something I... I most, I most enjoy that ability to say, here are the key concerns, here are the key perspectives in the private sector, bringing that into the agency as somebody who also speaks agency speak, and then really taking some of the perspectives from inside the agency, and that's always a harder challenge, um, and translating that to, to folks outside the agency. I think, ironically enough, that outside in, as I mentioned earlier, is actually far easier. I think, perhaps surprisingly, um, it, doesn't, it probably doesn't fit with the image. Most folks join NSA, actually spend their careers at the agency, and as a result, don't quite have the opportunity to engage outside, outside government with the private sector. So I find there's often a deep hunger to hear, for example, what's deeply felt perspective versus a headline, you know, and, and really to understand that and to think about how that shapes the work that we do within the agency, how that shapes the way we think about risk, the way we think about balancing you know, the, the broader roles in terms of national security, the country's power as an economic engine, 
So I've actually found the hunger from the outside in makes that almost an easier translation. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes what's more challenging is um, explaining the agency's mission or explaining some of those considerations when some big parts of things that factor into that are hard to talk about or they're classified. So I've actually found that a harder role, but that, that indeed, that serving as that bridge has been, is my role. Is there a generational issue? Because one of the things people get the, they finally get their clearance and they're behind the CVC wall and uh, typically once you're in the intelligence world, you stay in the intelligence world for obvious reasons. You're, you've been vetted, you're working and you know the stuff. Are people getting, problematically older <laughs> within these organizations because um, typically in companies uh, it's going the other way. The younger and younger people, especially mm -hmm. in tech companies, mm -hmm. rule. Mm -hmm. uh, so is this a uh, young Turks and old farts interface that we're talking about here or what? Not quite. Geeks and geezers. Geeks and geezers, yeah. Mm. <laughs> Not quite. I there think... are some geezer geeks, it's true, but so I think as folks here who've interacted with either the military or government for that matter know, they are more hierarchical societies than average private sector, particularly the technology sector, no right? No kidding, that it's part of DOD. I mean, this is, you have, what, how many people you report to? One, the yeah, director Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm trying to make a point here, Stuart, work with me, will you? Sorry. <laughs> In any event, so it is far more, shall we say, hierarchical. Mm -hmm. I think that being said, the key movers and shakers are, of course, the folks who are closest to technology, the folks who are most current. Um, increasingly, at NSA, I'm a good example, there are younger folks coming in and being put in positions of responsibility, which is exciting. That's also a great way for us to attract and retain talent from outside. So I think that folks understand that for an agency to be innovative and on the forward edge of technology, generally, you need folks who are not as wedded to the way we may have done something a period of time ago. But to find that balance between experience and new ideas mm -hmm. is really the challenge of every organization, but particularly one that's very sensitive to risk and works in a very, um, in a very sensitive area. Yeah, well, especially because companies are allowed to go out of business and you guys aren't. Which is a good thought. <laughs> We've thought about that over the last year as well. Um, Francis uh, poses this question. When Russia invaded Ukraine, it seemed to take us by surprise. Uh, and, and here's his question. Have Snowden's revelations damaged our ability to anticipate sudden moves by rivals and adversity, adversaries? Now, you're welcome to answer the Snowden part, but what I'd really like you to do is talk a little bit about that nutty, very naughty problem of surprise and warning. And I recall when the Berlin Wall fell, everybody was surprised. There was an interview and, uh, and, they, and James Baker said, caught me by surprise. Uh, Lawrence Eagleburger said, I had no idea it was happening. George Schultz said, yeah, I was completely surprised. And Richard Pipes, a, a Russian specialist, was also surprised. And it seems that if we go back through the last couple of decades, surprise is the norm in intelligence. And, is that ratio changing? And, and of course, uh, does Snowden factor into this? So we'll talk about each of those two questions for a moment. So I'll, I'll quote some of the things the director of NSA has said about that first question. And I think the first question, he, the way he spoke to the, the impact of, the, of what we call inside the media leaks, really is that it is hard to anticipate today 
you know, what that impact will be. That's a long-term impact. Yes, have we seen evidence that certain what we call intelligence in areas of interest, people or groups um, that the intelligence community was monitored, have we seen them talk about changing the way they communicate because of the Snowden leaks? Absolutely. Are we concerned that when that change happens, we no longer have the ability to have insights into what they do? Absolutely. So from that perspective, yes, we have seen an impact. But that assessment is longer term. And the final point he's made is, it will always be hard to define between what are natural changes in technology. For example, a certain organization deciding to upgrade their networks and the intelligence community potentially loses insight as a result from a change that's made because of having read a particular media revelation. So that's kind of the way that we've talked about that first question you asked. And I think in terms of the second question, you know, one of the, we, we talked about it here a bit, you know, one of the hardest pieces in terms of predicting the future, which is the question you're asking, is understanding the different key trends and tensions occurring and which ones will relate and interrelate. And that's really a challenge that I think is faced in the private sector in terms of understanding, you know, which are the technologies that will succeed, which are the bets to make, and certainly very much in government. One of our hopes is that with the proliferation of data sources, we'll be able to actually pull together interesting data sources. For example, a population sentiment. What folks say between themselves. You can understand now, perhaps in a way that was harder to prior to that. Perhaps in the past, you only could look at public media. Now you have the ability to understand that at a much more granular level. But pulling those different trends and tensions together and having a sense of where that will result is an ongoing challenge, and it's something that we so continue to think about. Let me just follow up on that a little bit, because um, it seems like the intelligence community have always been data optimists, that if we just had more data, and, and we know after every crisis, um, it's, well, if if there had been more data, we'd connect the dots. And, you know, there's a classic example, like um, I think of 9-11, but this was said by the church committee in 1975. It's become commonplace to translate criticism of the intelligence results into demands for enlarged data collection. Does, data, does more data really lead to more insight? I think one of the, well, that's an interesting question. That's a private sector, big well, data in fact, question as well. Let me phrase it another right. way. That, well, that may be changing with data mining as well. Exactly. Well, with, this is Silicon Valley, we all live in it. I mean, and with big data, as a friend likes to say, perhaps the data haystack that the intelligence community has created has grown too big to ever find the needle in. I think one of the reasons that we talked about our desire to work with big data peers on analytics is because we certainly feel that we can glean far more value from the data we have and potentially collect less data if we have a deeper understanding of how to better bring that together to develop new insights. As I mentioned, you know, the, one of the hardest challenges we have is the discovery of new threats. Once you're aware that a certain individual is planning something, it's a degree of understanding the technology, understanding the way they communicate. But the challenge of figuring out what we call our unknown unknowns is one that, <laughs> that's a scary thought. We used that at GBN before the Secretary of Defense yeah. did. Yeah. Thank you. The wrong guy advertised it. That's right. Exactly. Thanks for Despite the help Despite that, there. it's valuable. Appreciate that. 
forget sometimes I'm on the West Coast here. And, but that ability to really think about how analytics help us achieve the mission while potentially managing that collection differently is really the goal. And it's really the reason we'd love to build that partnership. So Kyle Elliott has a specific question. Secure information and privacy need to be balanced. Please give us an example of when you feel the NSA worked at its best in this balanced regard. Um, I would love it if you're specific. And that would be a different one. Let me think of an interesting example I can actually talk about. Balancing, <laughs> yeah, secure information and privacy. This is No tricky. problem, you're not being recorded, so. That's actually highly ironic. <laughs> You know, I have to admit, so I got here, you know, about an hour earlier, Stuart and I were talking, and a very kind Andrew here put on my mic, and I'm thinking, hmm, this is rather interesting. I wonder if it's turned on. How will I know? That's right. In any event. Actually, everybody but, in the room's wearing a wire as well, so. And you know, when we talked about that earlier, so I, folks may not have picked up from my accent, I'm originally from Brooklyn. So when you mentioned that earlier, I kind of gulped and said, really, wearing a wire? Okay, if you're not from Brooklyn, maybe that doesn't resonate, but okay. In any event, so with regard to the security and privacy, I think um, I'll talk about one effort. I'm not going to get really specific, because that's, that's hard. Um, but in one case, um, within NSA, we had insights about a potential threat because of a class of vulnerabilities, a class of technology vulnerabilities. And we brought together you know, a small group of companies and kind of sat down and said, we're going, to share this, we're going to share this intelligence with you and help us understand how broad is the threat. We actually don't know how vulnerable key systems are to this, key systems we have in the government, key systems across critical infrastructure. And the folks said, you know, we actually don't know either. We'll take a look. And everybody went back, and we established a study group that actually studied that area. And then, quietly, over the next few months, we all came together, we all brought some of our key experts, and worked together as a set of vulnerabilities that actually crossed chipsets, operating systems, etc. And we actually worked together and defined certain standards um, and worked closely. And then the companies worked to quietly implement those and raise the bar of security in their products. So that's an example where it's not necessarily the privacy of individuals, it was the privacy of the companies involved that really wanted the ability to focus on class of vulnerabilities. Um, it was in nobody's interest for that we talked about publicly from an NSA perspective. Clearly, there were sensitive sources and methods. From a company perspective, there was a desire, companies desire to focus on those vulnerabilities. And I think the key piece there that is, is important to highlight is the one we talked about earlier, which is that NSA specifically, in the broader US government, uses commercial technologies across all of our systems. So we do actively work to raise the bar of that security, to partner on that. It's something we do quietly, because clearly it's, uh, it's probably in no one's interest, um, at least from a, a broader perspective. Um, but it's certainly something that we try to balance in that way. I'll, as you ask me further questions, I'll try to think of more specific examples that okay, speak great, to that. Thank you. Um, it occurs to me, the companies you're mostly talking about are American companies, totally or mostly, or what? Pretty much. You know, for example, our information assurance directorate defines some 
standards mm -hmm. that non-US companies, for example, mobility standards, have mm -hmm. worked to meet mm -hmm. in order to meet various government procurements. So that's one tool we use to kind of raise certain standards because to a certain extent, the Department of Defense does have mm -hmm. a large IT budget, although we're often told we no longer matter in terms of consumer consumer acquisition really driving it. But to the extent we can, we do work to define those standards, and then any company that wants to meet them, of course we welcome that. Well, hmm. so you took a vow about the U.S. Constitution, and uh, there's, there's a national role, there's a national government that you're mm -hmm. working for. Uh, a lot of these issues go way outside national. They're global. It's the whole internet in the sense that you're trying to help secure. It's companies that are uh, working with things way outside the U.S. Uh, there's probably things that you would like to have not only safe for, in a way, for us, but e even in a sense for adversaries. The example of that being back in the day when, uh, I think Reagan, before him, Eisenhower was pushing for open skies, mm -hmm. that you know, what satellites mm -hmm. found should be available to all. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of pushback on that, as you may well remember. Um, but it turned out that that kind of data being available from satellites helped everybody's defense and didn't give that much help to everybody's offense. Mm -hmm. And so then Clinton, you know, released it so that our GPSs told us exactly where we were instead of generally where we mm -hmm. were. And so there was a, a, a sort of nationally enabled and then encouraged improvement of data that everybody could have. Does any of that bear relation to what you guys are having to deal with now? It does. It does in terms of... It does and it doesn't. Okay. From an NSA perspective, it does in terms of efforts to share vulnerabilities, efforts to um, think about... Uh, so, so here's perhaps a better way to put it. You know, prior to... Really, in many ways, September 11th was a turning point for the intelligence community. Mm -hmm. Because prior to that, quite candidly, most of our areas of foreign intelligence interests were foreign governments. And foreign governments typically used their own national technology, mm -hmm. sometimes their own indigenous encryption. So that was a particular set of uh, foreign intelligence needs. After September 11th, there really was an increase in some key missions, counterterrorism, counterproliferation, counter-narcotics, but most importantly, you had transnational actors who use commercial technologies for all the reasons we love it. It's ubiquitous, it's free, it's good. So for the first time, you, we really were faced with um, a foreign intelligence target using the same technologies, in many cases, NSA was. So that balance of how do you maximize the security of the technologies you're using while also maintaining the ability to have insights into foreign intelligence targets became the central challenge and the central balance. And that's been something that a lot of folks think about very carefully. That's that tension I talked about earlier each and every day. Mm -hmm. And that really was the key turning point. To a certain extent, the removal of controls on the export of encryption in the late 90s was a piece of that, but it really was the growth of suddenly a transnational foreign intelligence need that really used the same web platforms that we all use, the same technologies that we all use. Oh my. 
This is a sign of love. I'm feeling it. <laughs> no, it, it we judge a lot about our speakers by the, the quantity and quality of questions that come up. Um, Tim and Kelly asked, since he was here, we just saw him, what's the best mechanism for an intelligence agency to prevent themselves from using national security secrecy to cover up embarrassments? Is there something better than whistleblowers to accomplish Well, there's that? the Freedom of Information Act. Um, <laughs> folks. Uh-oh. Raucous laughter. I don't know. You may laugh. Inside the agency, the numbers skyrocketed, and there's more and more folks who are just working, pulling Freedom of Information Act requests and data for that. So, and, and say how that's working in, in ways that uh, you think are effective. So the question you asked me of whether there are mechanisms. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, so I look at, you know, sometimes I come to work, I talked about that tension, and I think of myself as a US citizen, and I kind of divorce my mind from my my day-to-day -day job, and I say, what would I think about this, just as a routine person? And I think certainly there are, I think the protections built in, in terms of the ability to ask a question. You know, it, I can see where, from the perspective of the technology sector, perhaps the amount of time it takes, or the sense that things get redacted, makes the Freedom of Information Act seem like probably an unwieldy or useless tool. Again, I'm looking at it from the angle of inside the agency, where I see the careful thought that goes into each one to say, what could be shared, what can't be shared? What would potentially impact sensitive sources and methods, and what doesn't? And real work goes into it, I've seen it. For just those few that, that, that have been related to stuff I've worked on. So I think, I guess, again, in that bridge role, I can appreciate the perspective that it's just humorous and doesn't achieve very much, but from inside the agency, I see that real work's done to try to you know, really think about what can be declassified, what can be shared to be responsive. So I think, going back to the question about what other tools are available, you know, I think, you know, I think some of the things we talked about earlier in terms of there's a lot of oversight, you know, attending some of those oversight panels, looking at the opportunity to serve on a civil liberties or oversight board, um, posing questions, you know, there's any number of policy discussions, asking policymakers those kinds of questions. I think there are any number of paths. I see the number of tough questions, and increasingly, I think we can do more on the NSA side coming to events like this. It's certainly, you know, it's a pleasure to be here. It's certainly not easy for folks who are trained in an environment where, you know, need to know. You don't talk about certain things. There are, there are very significant controls inside. And in fact, those have been increased um, to make sure that if there isn't a need for somebody to know, balanced by the need for sharing and the need to bring teams together, we get that balance right. But I think by, shall we say, folks within the intelligence community making a point to try to come out, talk about programs, to declassify when possible. And in fact, now there have been increasing discussion of saying, when we're creating a new policy, can we create an unclassified version? I was part of a discussion like that just last week. So I think it's that coming from both sides. I think the, the, the public perhaps taking the time to understand things at a level of detail below the headline. And then from the intelligence community, taking the time to come to discussions, mm -hmm. to do our part within, to ensure that there are potentially unclassified versions of policies. You know, I'll give a good example. 
the congressional legislation underpinning all of NSA's programs, so we talk about the Section 215 BR-FISA, for example, which is a program that was collecting metadata and U.S. person's phone calls. Those were all, <coughs> sorry, authorized by Congress and then reauthorized repeatedly. Those were all on the record. Those were easy for folks to take the time to, to look at and review. And they were, as I said, continuously reauthorized. So I think it's, it's that balance. Sometimes there's a lot of information out there, but you know, it may not necessarily be in a, in a way that's easy to comprehend you know, quite candidly. Sometimes when I look at all the information we declassified and wading through it, you know, so there's, good more, there's further work we can do in the IC to give to index it, to add, to add context to it, et cetera. But I do think there's a fair amount of information out there for folks who take the time to read, to study, to ask questions. It's certainly complex. It's, I'll be the first to say, sometimes it's certainly it's a fair amount of uh, intelligent ease. This is and a very hopeful indicator in our last elections here in California. 18% of the electorate voted. So. Very hopeful that we'll have engaged citizens looking deeply in questions. Um, Folks can raise their hands. We've got. Hey, I get to ask tough questions too once in a while. Absolutely. Um, we, we have a whole bunch of Snowden questions that you can't possibly answer. Uh, <laughs> so, Good, let's so I've, I've sort of synthesized a couple, and, I, and, and, and here's the question What were the positive aspects of the Snowden revelations? If you look at it, I mean, there is no wind so ill that it does not blow some good. What is the silver lining to this, this cloud for the NSA? So again, I, I, I'll reference something the director of NSA talked about. You know, fundamentally, NSA and the broader intelligence community's role is protecting and defending the United States, fundamentally serving the American public. And as technology evolves, as knowledge about threats and risk evolves, we are a decade after 9-11. Sometimes there isn't a natural way for that discourse, for that societal contract to continue to get updated. So from the perspective of understanding as a society where folks' thoughts are a decade after 9-11, how that ongoing harmony of security and privacy evolves, I think has been very helpful for, for, for many folks to see and understand. And I'm hopeful, somewhat as we talked about in terms of the, the Fourth Amendment and how telephone technology, how that evolved over time. It's actually fascinating if you look at the evolution of that between the courts and Congress over time. I think that that evolution requires an educated public, it requires a, an intelligence community that engages. So I think we're, we're in a healthy place from that perspective. So Garrett Gruner has a great follow-on question to your observations. He observes, <laughs> privacy is legally an implied right, the Fourth, Fifth, and Tenth Amendments. Should it be an explicit right? And if so, how should it be architected? That's an interesting question. I'd like to... <laughs> you know, I think that... Garrett always does this. Yeah. I, you know, I think looking at the Fourth Amendment specifically, search and seizure, property, right? It was initially defined as physical property. And in fact, there was a disagreement between Congress mm. and the courts as that became one's digital property. Mm. You know, I think that the key elements of privacy, our homes, our communications, are really protected implicitly and that 
We haven't, at least from my perspective, I think we've seen those constitutional rights upheld and evolve throughout our history. So at least from my personal perspective, and now I speak from my personal perspective to Stuart's earlier point, you know, I, I think that those protections and those freedoms are implicit and have served the, the original framers' intent. Um, but you'd have to ask a constitutional attorney. you have more on that? No. A uh, couple of questions, Dan Mosdale and Michael both had questions related to uh, RSA random number generator. I'll use Dan's version of the question. Do you consider the NSA's role in weakening the RSA random number generator to be a violation of the NSA existing social contract? Uh, how do you think about its exploitability by criminal elements? So... <clears throat> you may need to explain what we're talking about here. So first and above all, I, um, we made a decision just about a year ago that NSA couldn't talk about individual programs because of the concern that you know, we'd get out there and we'd say X is not true or Y is not true, and then when something had elements of truth, you know, we'd have a hard time, it'd be clear from the fact that we didn't say anything that there was an issue there. So I cannot talk about specific efforts as a result. Okay, I think at a high level... Yeah, right. <laughs> at a high level generically. And if folks need, I can explain what that issue is um, or what that question is. Um, but I think at a high level, there's three pieces. The first is that, as I mentioned a couple of times, NSA, the US government, uses commercial technology across all of our systems. We use the encryption and standards that we advocate for, and we advocate for the encryption and standards that we use. So as an extension of that, and again, I cannot speak to individual efforts or, or, or concerns, but as an extension of that, we've worked to raise the level of security in that technology because we understand the vulnerabilities and we understand the way nation state actors specifically would be targeting those vulnerabilities. And I apologize if this is not a particularly satisfying answer, but that's pretty much given the kind of clear guidance we've had of we cannot talk about specific programs, as pretty much as far as, as I can go. What would you say about the, I don't know, the trends and threats? Um, quantity, quality, sources, uh, sort of the general thing which, um, I mean, companies are well aware that they're getting different kinds of attacks mm -hmm. from different sources and at different levels. <coughs> and um, so presumably this is not something, especially NSA, that you, uh, you would have to reveal. But I think people also don't know what the private companies are facing. So what's the threat environment like and how is it changing? I think that's a terrific question, really, particularly in the area of cyber mm -hmm. and vulnerabilities in cyber infrastructure. And I think we see three different categories of threats. And certainly, I think the prior director of NSA, General Alexander, has talked about it, I think, as the largest theft of, of property in history. I think we see those three levels. First and above all, we see, um, to a certain extent, nation state, government, for either competitive advantage or for intelligence advantage. But in terms of the private sector, for competitive advantage. Mm -hmm. There is significant amounts of research and technology that are certainly being targeted um, by either other governments um, for, for their benefit, for their economic growth. I think from the perspective of financial elements, mm -hmm. 
criminal elements, intent on financial gain. That's where you see specifically online retailers facing those threats. I actually had an interesting, just today, I used my credit card checking into the hotel and it was denied and I had an email saying, you know, that uh, my credit card information, you know, I shouldn't use it, etc. I need to get a new card. So it was particularly interesting for me. I just experienced that today. <laughs> but in any event, so I think that there is those sets, both for criminal intent and for nation state Are you intent. saying the NSA can't even protect your credit card? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to answer that question, Steve. I understand some, there's some Nigerians who'll be very happy. <laughs> In any event, so, and we see an increasing trend. And I think one of the things um, that we are seeing is a greater awareness by companies of that trend and really a growth in the security market, which we're happy about. Because mm -hmm. from NSA's perspective, increased security across US companies, across really globally, is something we fully support. So I think we're, there's this excitement and the sense that finally, you know, some of the boring um, security recommendations or best practices that various information assurance groups have been recommending for years now are actually have a price tag attached in terms of folks actually seeing um, because, of course, many security improvements are a cost, so there's got to be that balance, particularly in the private sector where there's a, and this is a joke, where there's a sensitivity to cost, unlike the government. So how big a threat to everything is uh, me and everybody else being careless with our passwords? I think you, you've, uh, we've seen that in many ways, of course. Yeah. Passwords are still, there's been much talk about the death of passwords, but passwords are still the core way we authenticate and still the core way we protect data. So obviously, and most certainly, being careless about passwords is something that, until we get beyond passwords to, to new what technologies. What comes, bio-identifiers bio or? Certainly. This, you know, there's something we'd love to see. One of the, one of the security practices that NSA's advocated for for a long time has been tying hardware and software. So really building hardware roots of trust into mobile devices, into all devices, where you can store keying elements, cryptographic elements, that then can authenticate all the way up from hardware to software in any way that can then authenticate uniquely. So that's one of the areas that we've encouraged for quite some time. Um, that we would then hope you could then tie to various other personal identifying information. So if the level of security sort of from the public for the public went up, how much more secure does the whole environment get? Is that you know, a minor improvement or a huge improvement or what? So there's different in terms of as a society. Mm -hmm. So I think from the government perspective, we often focus on threats to critical infrastructure, threats mm -hmm. to control systems, so that's somewhat different technology right. that often benefited okay, from that so, old yeah. security by obscurity. Um, but I think in terms of threats to consumers, threats to banking, threats to individuals' personal information, that's certainly something where, from a government perspective, the more careful folks are, the more folks raise the bar, the more technologies make it easier to actually use security. And that's been one, you know, slightly, well, fully positive. I'm trying to be slightly because of, because of the earlier question. But that's one certainly positive impact of some of the Snowden revelations, a sense of a growth in privacy-related technologies, a certain growth. So from that perspective, I think that the greater public focus on that is something we would consider very, very positive. So if people are protecting themselves from NSA, they'll actually improve the overall security of the system. I wouldn't put it quite like that, <laughs> but the end goal is something we would support. Yes, Stuart. So um, there's, there's a subcurrent about openness in the whole conversation, and we've certainly seen in the business world where companies have done very radical open steps. Famously, there was one company, Goldcore, 
that released its uh, most secure information about uh, a particular mining property and had a competition uh, to see who could figure out where the gold was on this property. And this was pure heresy to release that data. Now, I realize the NSA operates under certain constraints, but part of your problem is you're not very open. Uh, what, it was only, what, 20 years ago that you gave out your street address. Um, <coughs> is there some sort of transformation? Fort Meade. Or West <laughs> Fort Meade, Maryland. Uh, that um, is, is there is there some some role that uh, open systems thinking can mm -hmm. play in all this in terms of public engagement and getting better mm -hmm. data? Uh, one of our locals, uh, Bill Joy, famously observed: No matter how good your company is, all the smart people don't work for you. Absolutely. So NSA has actually really tried to work more with the open source community. Mm -hmm. So you may know, for example, um, the original. NSA released or was a part of SE Linux in 2000. Accumulate, which was built on Google's big table, um, was something that was done from the 2008, I believe, and then released fully in 2011. I have to check my dates on that. Um, and then continuing contributions to open source, various other technologies beyond that. So there actually is a greater focus. So for example, um, some of the cell-based security work that was done was really NSA contributions to open source. So there's a great deal more focus now on making contributions in that area. And lots of folks are really proud about that. I don't have all the details, but I know those three specific efforts, and I believe there are more beyond that. So just to follow on in the same spirit of transformation, um, my sense that as a citizen observing that the Snowden uh, event is kind of a missed opportunity for transformation inside the intelligence community, that previous crises have led to deep transformations. You talked about 9-11, moving away from the bias of nation-state actors to, mm -hmm. to non-nation states. And there are a couple of questions here that hint at it. For example, Kevin Kelly says, should the NSA play a role in devising the new rules for cyber war? If I think of the sweep of the intelligence community over the last couple of decades, uh, there's always been the tension between um, analysis and policy formulation. And we've had a pretty mm -hmm. strict history mm -hmm. in this country that analysis was done by one mm -hmm. agency, policy formulation done by another. Does that still make sense in this day of big data and the like? Should NSA be doing policy? From my perspective, and again, this is a broader question, but the executive branch defines policy, defines those programs, and then the intelligence community then executes them. And I think that that's been one of the, I think, key items that folks within NSA... I actually mean the other way around. You the do reverse. the analysis and you hand it off to the agencies that, you or, know, the gun toters or the FBI or whoever, that ah, separating you analysis uh -huh. from actual policy formulation. So I was thinking of, and let's go back just to be sure yeah. I understand your question. I was thinking of policy formulation more in terms of the way Congress or the executive branch define yeah. and say, you know, here's the way you were permitted to do collection, for This example. is more, you're, as an agency, you do the analysis that identifies the threat, you hand that off to somebody else to come up with the policy of dealing with the threat. Aha. Uh -huh. And the question again, just so I follow. Should that separation continue? So that's an interesting question. 
Um, there's a number of different ways to address that. And I think to Stuart's earlier point, ask me a few other questions. Because I think, no, speaking very honestly, mm -hmm. it's an area that we've talked about inside and explored. I'm not really clear on, on what my boundaries are to talk about there. So rather than air, I'd rather... Uh, okay, well, we, yeah. we have lots of other questions. The relationships between agencies, between, for various missions, is something that... Uh, That's fair. That's take a step back on that yeah, for now. A great issue. Because yeah. uh, I was going to ask you, should uh, NSA stop being both civilian and military and become civilian? And that's probably not yeah. something we should ask well, you. Well, but the recent director figured that out. He just went civilian. It turned out to be very profitable. That was a joke. <laughs> oh, that. <laughs> yeah, but she doesn't work for him. Um, we mostly talk about cyber stuff, and, but terrorism is you know, still the main event in many respects in terms of uh, both perceived threat and in another dimension actual threat, I imagine. So I asked about the, the sort of general threat domain in terms of cyber. What's the, your perception of the general threat domain and trends in terms of terrorism? So again, uh, you know, I think you've seen any number of administration officials and various mm. intelligence officials talk about that. The concerns that, you know, one of the, that we have somewhat a, a fear about Western trained Western individuals going to various areas of unrest in the Middle East, Syria. getting training and mm -hmm. weapons and coming back. I think we saw a Florida man recently, you may have seen, um, a Florida man traveled to Syria, got mm -hmm. training, came back home, and then traveled back and uh, blew himself up in a suicide attack in Syria. And that's, I think, the biggest fear of the intelligence community today. Um, you know, Westerners, U.S. persons, they have a very heavy protections under the Constitution. Clearly, they're not monitored um, without, a really good, <laughs> without a really good sense that somebody is certainly doing something of real concern. So that sense of folks crossing borders, equipped with a Western or a U.S. passport, mm -hmm. and then equipped with potential training on weapons is certainly something that's a big area of concern. I think generally... Um, history has shown us, in, in many cases, that lawless areas breed folks who are trained, folks who are equipped with weapons. And certainly over the last number of years, there's been an increase in the number of area, lawless areas, areas of conflict around the world. So I think there's certainly a heightened concern about the potential for um, those kinds of activities. Uh, it's 13 years now since 9-11. We haven't had that kind of attack since then. Uh, who do we thank for that? I think we certainly thank um, the hard work of the intelligence agencies of the U.S. and allies overseas. I think the, one of the hardest challenges in the social contract between a public and intelligence community and the military is that, by definition, the work of the intelligence organizations has to be done in the shadows. And certainly, you know, it's, I talked about the quiet professionals earlier. For folks who, who ever um, come have a visit to the National Security Agency, and I believe it's the same at other intelligence agencies, CIA, etc. So you walk in, and then you kind of take a right, and then right in front of you is a black granite wall, and it says on top, they served in silence. 
and it has the names, mostly military, of individuals who lost their lives as cryptologists or as various intelligence professionals over the years. I can say that in the five years I've been at NSA, I've gone to five, six ceremonies where new names were engraved on the wall. You have the family members come, but they really, that's not talked about. You know, how they lost their lives, what was done. And I think, you know, achieving that balance, how to, how to help the public understand what's being done so that they can make fair judgments about whether these efforts are warranted, whether they're achieving the intent, is certainly something that thinking about how, as an intelligence community, we share some of the work that's being done while A, protecting sources and methods, and B, also remaining those quiet professionals, I think is really, it's really a, a central challenge. It's something that folks, there's a certain internal pride when you know, an attack is thwarted or some information about a potential plan is shared with a, shared with a, with a foreign government. And this certainly is, is not something that is, is talked about, or certainly the encouragement of talking about that is not something that's done, for very, very good reasons. You certainly don't want folks jockeying for, um, for credit. So I think, but on the other hand, how does the public understand what's being done? So I think that balance and creative ideas of how to achieve that balance, from my perspective, from folks coming in, so from the intelligence community going to the outside, seeing how communication is done. Folks from the outside coming into government, understanding the need to protect various sources, but also the need to communicate. I think that's a prime example of where better sharing of techniques, of understanding, happens by people moving between those communities. How much of the, I guess, quiet, secret uh, environment is a appropriate leftover from the Cold War where there was a symmetrical challenge, basically, the Soviet Union and the U.S. were standing off and the rest of the world was trying to stay out of the client wars. Um, in the much more asymmetric threat environment now, our, you know, Russia is a national problem of some sort, but nothing like what it was. And is, should the nature of how secrecy works within the government um, change in this asymmetric environment or just slightly retune the way we did in the Cold War? So we've certainly seen the administration, President Obama, make commitments to say we're going to push for more transparency, we're going to push for more openness. And that's making its way through government. More is something that's saying the American public, who mm -hmm. served, is pressing for more transparency. Mm -hmm. So that defines overall the approach there. Mm -hmm. um, so, and you're certainly seeing that across government in, in any number of ways. And I think that it's appropriate. I think fundamentally, you know, somebody made a comment to me. They said, you know, to a certain extent, privacy is dead. And NSA has to think about what's the state of its own <laughs> privacy. Right. And I think that that tension pushing for that balance of in a democracy, how do publics, how do citizens maintain insights and the work that's done for their behalf in a way that allows the public who is served by it to make judgment calls, that's the core tension. And I think that, you know, it's rightful that it's that tension because that's how we'll get to the right place. So I certainly think from an administration perspective, there's a press for more transparency and we're seeing it as I talked about in the 
far greater declassification. We're seeing that in open hearings and privacy and civil liberties reports and in unclassified reports that are being issued about programs that were not even acknowledged you know, some so time ago. Is declassification passive or active? Uh, and you, do you just sort of quietly let something now be visible or you say you might be interested in this, which is no longer a secret? I believe the Director of National Intelligence has, I believe they post, I'm actually, they do, post on their website. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, you know, they'll get out their release, media releases. Um, I don't know if the DNI tweets, I know CIA does. Um, <laughs> but it's certainly, if you visit DNI's site, um, there's, they're all listed there, the various declassifications, they're sorted, you can spend some time on the site. Um, there's also various policy think tanks that have kind of taken the information and put it into better context so it's easier to follow and understand. I think Brookings Institute, for example, I talked about Ben Wittes earlier, he's done phenomenal work, really pulling that together, the different programs, the timeline of certain programs, the legal structure. I found it tremendously helpful, you know, taking a look at that and, and putting context around what was declassified to better understand that. So I think that I would actually encourage both the DNI site, but also some various policy think tanks that have given it context, put it into history, and made it much more consumable. Plus, here you are. I mean, thank you, Anne, for coming out of the shadows. It's been my pleasure. And talking to us. And thank you for your service. Thank you. <laughs> This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.